You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with John McQuaid, who is author of Well, you published in numerous uh, publications and also currently at the University of Maryland, formerly at the Wilson Center, and the author of this book I have right here. It's called Tasty, the Art and Science of What We Eat. Also the author of Path of Destruction, The Devastation of New Orleans and the Coming Age of Superstorms. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great, Great to be talking to you. You know, this book, Tasty, I like this book. I'm fascinated with food. I'm fascinated with taste. And you began the book by talking about how this is sort of an underappreciated sense, right? You talk about how the science of optics has a long history, right? And Newton is our person that kind of put optics on the map. But we don't have a Newton of taste, right? And on the one hand, is this because taste is, I guess it's not considered like the noble sense compared to vision, but it could also be because it's just so much more complicated than sight. First of all, why is the science of taste so underdeveloped? And then what is it that drew you to write a whole book on all of these different aspects of taste? It's a good question. I mean, it's partly because it's such a complicated phenomenon and there's so many ways to look at it. You can look at it through food and how food is prepared. or You can look at how the brain perceives it or the anatomy, and the anatomy is complex because it involves your tongue, obviously, but also, you know, your measles passages. And so it involves genetics. So really understanding it, you need to put all these different pieces together. And there's nobody really doing, or different people are trying to do that, but it's not, as you mentioned, like sight where you look at something and there's photons and biology interacting. So for that reason, it's kind of hard to get your arms around, but fascinating also. In terms of your other question, that's also a good question. I mean, I became interested because of my kids who are now grown and have diversified their senses of taste somewhat. But when they were small, one kid liked really spicy foods And the other kid liked really bland foods. And they were both picky eaters. So they liked like just a few things and which we had to give to them over and over because they rejected everything else. And you couldn't feed them the same thing, obviously. So it it drove us crazy, my wife and I began to wonder why is this? Kids are have similar genes. They were born two years apart. They're in the same environment. Why would they go in two completely different directions as far as their flavor sense goes. And so I began to dig into that question and find out some of the reasons why there's not really an easy answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, it's a mystery because you talk about how sight evolved, particularly our ability to perceive color and presumably originated among our primate ancestors because it enabled them to spot ripe fruit against a kind of green background, at least the ability to perceive reds and yellows and so forth, right? But finding it is one thing. Figuring out whether to ingest it is another. So presumably taste has this super important natural role in helping to protect us against poisons and also to reward us for consuming the stuff that is really good for us. But if that were the case, if it was purely natural or genetic, then we wouldn't see so much variation, both cultural variation and even individual variation within the same culture, like your kids who presumably have the same 
background, same culture and everything. So I thought the most fascinating part of the whole story was this interplay between the natural part, the cultural part, and just the purely idiosyncratic part. So maybe we could jump in, start with the natural part, because the other thing I found fascinating in the book is this idea that the amount of our brain that is devoted to taste it's really big, right? It's a lot, right? It's a pretty huge thing, right? And we don't really think about that, but that it's something pretty essential. So can you maybe dig into what you learned when researching the, the natural and the genetic and the neurological aspects of taste? Yeah, taste is a very ancient sense. It's more ancient than sight even. or you know, It goes back really to the dawn of life on Earth. And at a particular point in time, early life forms began devouring other life forms. And when you do that, you're moving through the ocean and you don't want to eat something that's going to disagree with you or kill you. And you do want to eat things which will nourish you. And this is the basis of the sense of taste. In other words, what your tongue is doing, there are considered five basic tastes which discern kind of basic sensations which relate to the body's homeostasis, to things which are potentially bad for you, to things which are potentially nourishing or give energy. And these have been passed down through hundreds of millions of years. And it's just a feature of life, all life, all kind of life moving around, non-plant life, multicellular life has some form of these taste receptors that are sensing what's in the environment and whether it goes into your body or is expelled out of the body. That's really fascinating. And that's like a genetic, it's a kind of template that we all carry around. Uh, we all are genetically programmed to like certain tastes and dislike other tastes. There's variations depending on your family history. For instance, some people are what are called super tasters, which means they're tuned very sensitively to uh to certain tastes, which means that just a little bit sets them off. There's non-tasters are kind of on the opposite end of the scale. This is, can be done with a genetic test. I had this done with my family. They test for a specific bitter tasting gene. And if you have one variant of it, you're very bad at tasting some of these bitter flavors. Another one, you can taste everything. Somewhat paradoxically, if you're a non-taster and you have this dull sense that means you tend to be more adventurous because you're affected less viscerally by a lot of these flavors. And so you can just eat it without feeling like it's too much. Whereas if you are a super taster, you're much more sensitive and you're not going to want to overdo it. I found that myself and my family were all non-tasters, which was interesting. And that, of course, didn't quite fit with my kid who, was, who liked bland foods also a non-taster, neither adventurous nor super sensitive. So what's going on there? But as I was saying, this is kind of a biological foundation that we're all carrying around that is tuned in different ways. Now, on top of that, the other principal component of the set flavor sense is, of course, in your nose. And everybody knows this. Your nose has a much greater capacity for variety. I mean, there are only five basic tastes it's not a lot of taste. There's sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and umami, umami being savory flavor. 
but what you sense aromatically, there are many different compounds that can be sensed, and they all have millions of different combinations that we sense differently. And then when we taste something, our tongue tastes some mixture present in whatever we're eating of the five tastes. And then while you're chewing, the nose is picking up all the aromatic elements, which are far more diverse. And then your brain knits all these things together into the experience of flavor. You can see it's complicated what's going on. It also has to do with the anatomy of the head, which I found really fascinating that the way modern humans evolved, their heads changed shape in such a way that the face flattened. This had the effect of shortening the retronasal passage, which is goes from the back of your mouth up to your nasal cavity. And that meant that those aromas had a much shorter distance to travel and became a much stronger element of flavor. So you could see all of these things in human evolution kind of rearranging themselves and coming together to this modern sense that we have. Because also everybody knows humans don't have a great sense of smell compared to your dog. Your dog has a vastly superior sense of smell and can smell something three miles away, but that doesn't matter in flavor. In flavor, what matters is you have this kind of thing going on inside, literally inside your head that is supercharging your the way you experience mm-hmm. flavor. So, But it's really a match between the environment, right? So we, as omnivores, have to do a lot of discrimination, whereas it, I guess you, you mentioned that whales and dolphins have lost a lot of the kind of capacity to taste things like sweetness because there's nothing in their environment that, that is sweet. Right? <laughs> You're eating right, right. seals or plankton or whatever, so you don't need this ability to discriminate sweet from non-sweet. So anything that we taste presumably has some kind of relevant informational value for our survival, one would think. And if that, right. and, and the other thing you mentioned is that there's really only one way to taste things that are sweet, but when it comes to things like bitter, there's lots and lots of different ways to stimulate bitter, at least at the genetic level. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Sweetness is the ability to taste sugar, basically. And there's only just a couple of forms of sugar molecules that we that exist that we can you can taste, like a handful of them. Whereas bitter compounds, there are about 30-something bitter genes that we're carrying, which have bitter receptors, which are you know in taste buds. And so your ability to sense bitterness is much more diverse. You can sense many more compounds. Of course, they're all perceived in the same way as bitter. So yeah, that's an artifact of our evolution of being mammals. Our ancestors lived in many different environments with different plants, since most bitter compounds come from plants. And so you're eating plants And so some are good for you in small amounts, but not big amounts. So that's why bitterness is like a don't eat too much of this signal. But of course, what's interesting is humans, we cultivate bitterness as a not nobody likes bitterness by itself, but in cuisine, bitterness is a very important component as a kind of counterpoint to other flavors. Like in coffee, for example, coffee is a little bit bitter. If there were no bitterness in coffee, it would be a much duller experience. And that's true of lots of different foods. It's true of beers, for example. Um, And that's, again, is part of the 
cultural experience of food that we've learned partly through what you're talking about is humans needed to adapt. So probably in the past, humans needed to live and eat bitter salads because nothing else was available. But over time, you know, we learned to kind of integrate and create more complicated experiences around food that could turn bitterness into something that was you know, a plus rather than a minus. I have trouble understanding the heterogeneity when it comes to bitterness, right? So you talk about these Bolivians who eat these potatoes, right? And if they have too much of this alkaloid in them, then they're poisonous. And so presumably there'd be some optimal point where up to this point, it's okay. Beyond this point, don't eat them. And so that would mean it would make sense for everybody in that community to have kind of the same threshold if toxicity is the same for everybody. But you point out that within the same culture, within even the same you know, family unit, you could have these radically different kind of susceptibilities or propensities to consume kind of bitter products. How does that make sense? Is this kind of like a frequency dependent thing where there's a trade-off and you know, being more sensitive to bitter comes with certain benefits and being less sensitive to bitter comes with other benefits. And they maybe one group suffers from certain types of ailments and the other group suffers from different types of ailments. Well, how does it make sense that we don't all just have kind of the same kind of taste for the same stuff? Yeah, that's a tough question. And I remember asking scientists that I talked to about this, you know, if bitterness is a bad taste, which it is, you know, why don't we all just hate it equally? And uh, I think the answer that you're pointing at is correct in that there's strength in diversity because the taste for bitterness, if you eat something bitter and don't eat it or force yourself to eat it, you're still, it's going to take a lot before you literally poison yourself if you're in a natural environment because there's a lot of different things. So it's helpful to have some people who are less sensitive and might be more willing to taste things that might be nutritious or possibly not. They get to eat the scraps. <laughs> right. Yeah. Other people who are less sensitive, and that may have benefits. So you get kind of the best of all worlds uh, from an evolutionary standpoint anyway, and that you're, all your bases are covered. At least that's the general explanation that scientists have. I don't think anybody really knows, but yeah. Well, in, in the book, you said that there's some suggestive research that this sensitivity to bitterness is not just simply in your taste buds, but actually other cells have some sensitivity to bitterness. This is really peculiar. This is really fascinating for me. And you talked a bit about kind of infections and your susceptibility to infections and how it might relate to your proclivity to eat bitter products and so forth. Has there been any good research that's developed out of those, those suggestions? I'm not really up to date on that particular issue. I mean, the main takeaway was that bitterness is just not, or these senses are not just features that are in your mouth, that this is a body-wide system that in your mouth does something that affects how you are moving through the world and your biology but that in other parts of the body, these same bitter receptors, which are these complex proteins, the same proteins are adapted to do different things, but they all deal with the digestive system or eating or homeostasis. So all of these things are kind of working together. And it's a little bit hard to say where one ends and the other begins because they all affect health 
and the way the body is processing food, what food it's eating, but also how it's being metabolized, etc. So yeah, you have to look at it in a, in a more holistic way. Now, one thing that we're, is uniquely human is this desire for spicy food. I love spicy food. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there are some people that take it to extremes that you describe in the book, people who have these kind of chili eating contests and so forth. But I always used to think that Mexican dogs would eat spicy food and Indian dogs would eat spicy food, but they don't, right? I think Paul Rosen discovered this, that really, if they're given the choice, they're going to go for the non-spicy. But even kids in those societies develop a taste for spicy and then they want spicy. So, so what is it about spicy? There's lots of evidence to suggest that capsicum is, a, is an antimicrobial and it can kill germs. And so that makes sense that it can perhaps be healthier to eat food that's been spiced. But if that's true, then you'd think that dogs and rats and everybody else would figure that out as well. But it seems to only humans that have this taste. So, so what's going on there? That's, that seems to be a big mystery. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question, given that, yeah, in the last 20 years, really, kind of the super hot pepper has become a real cultural cuisine phenomenon around the world. It's used both in high cuisine, but it's also just become the hot pepper eating contest in bars. And uh, super hot sauce has just gotten hotter and hotter, I found, um, just so that it's literally kind of a biohazard to like have around. You have to use gloves if you're touching this stuff because you don't want to put in your put your finger to your eye, for example. And why is that? Because it's not a, that too, like bitterness is not a pleasant sensation in and of itself. It's really a culturally driven thing. The capsaicin or peppers have become a global phenomenon, I guess, only in the past 500 years or so, since they were, they're native to the Americas and then the kind of age of exploration, they started moving around the world on trade routes and were then incorporated into cuisine in India and various other places. Before that, you, there wasn't you had pepper, regular pepper and other spicy elements of cuisine, but not the capsaicin, which is this very distinctive, painfully hot sensation that literally mimics tricks the heat receptors in your body to thinking that the temperature is really high. So anyway, so it's not an ancient phenomenon. It's a, entirely a cultural phenomenon of a recent one. And yeah, I, and so I don't really have a good explanation. Again, it's part of this contradiction in cuisine that people like contrast. And this is like the most extreme contrast. And for some, it's like a test of will or it's like climbing a mountain you have to put yourself to the hazard uh, you know and it's really fascinating and of course it is a good element in cuisine i mean i i like spicy foods i don't like super hot spicy foods i in the book i write about how my son and i went to visit the man who bred the carolina reaper which is i believe still has holds the record as the world's hottest pepper and so we go there and he's like chopping up these peppers. He's like popping them in his mouth. And then we get like a tiny little piece, each of us, and we put them in our mouths and we're like, ah, we're practically on the floor. It's not something I would want to do all the time, but it was a lot of fun to do once. And I think that's part of it, part of what's going on as well. 
Well, you talked a bit about how people have a desire for diversity, right? And that you can get tired of something when it has the sort of same flavor. And of course, this explains why there's always room for dessert, right? You're full and then all of a sudden dessert shows up and magically you have extra room in, in, in your stomach, right? Is that true just for sweets? Or, you know, if you ate the sweets first and then a savory came out, you'd all of a sudden find a magic room in your stomach for the savory. Yeah, that too is a cultural phenomenon or it's a biological psychological, cultural thing. Because, yeah, I mean, putting the sweet at the end of a meal hasn't always been the case. It's the case in European history in the last 300 years or something. So it's not the case in other parts of the world. It's not the case historically, except in our own more recent experience as Americans. So yeah, that's purely arbitrary. But yeah, it, it is a real thing that which everybody experiences is that oh yeah, it's time for dessert and coffee. And yeah, I can definitely make some room for pie or the body has an expectation that this is going to happen. And so the kind of saliency of the experience increases and you kind of pre- your body is prepared for it. And if you don't get it, it, you're disappointed and you feel like you've lost something. So yeah, that's very a very real phenomenon. It's probably a very, per- it's probably a very pernicious phenomenon. <laughs> in getting people to Mm -hmm. eat more stuff that they should not eat. Well, you talk a bit about the great sweetness experiment that we're undergoing, where the consumption of sugars and sweet products have really exploded over the last century. And, you know, this seems to be an example of where our taste system has let us down, right? So if our taste system is supposed to point us towards the things that are healthy and steer us away from things that are bad for us. It doesn't seem to be working here, right? Because we have a lot of diabetes, obesity, and so forth that is, many would say, driven by overconsumption of sweets. So is that just like a a mismatch story where we're consuming sweets and they're rare and so we want to have sweets? Or is it that we really are kind of industrially manufacturing things in ways that are designed to stimulate cravings? You talk a bit about this in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's a mismatch between what our systems evolved to respond to being kind of semi-arboreal creatures who are hunting, gathering 200,000 years ago or more in, in Africa. And that's in that environment, you're going to have a little bit of sweetness, honey principally, and that's fine, but not much salt not much fat, you don't have the constituents of junk food, and you'll be having a much more, if you're eating a real paleo diet, it's going to be a fairly balanced diet, depending on the circumstances. But yeah, today, you have corporations which are manufacturing junk food and fast food chains that are serving up large cups of soda, and it's all designed to trick that system or hit that system's most vulnerable spot, which is that the stuff which is the most in the environment 200,000 years ago is the most kind of rare and precious when it's suddenly abundant, you know, and that your system is going to click in and focus in on that because it's rare and because it's good in small amounts, then that's hacked by this abundance today. And, And all these combinations of salt, sugar, fat, texture, the potato chip, or different kinds of chips really are very satisfying to crunch into. Just the whole experience of it is great, but 
you shouldn't be eating entire bags of chips. And yet it's hard to stop because it stimulates endorphins in your endogenous opioids in your brain, which create pleasure. And uh, you, it's not addictive in the sense of like actual opioids, but it has some of those properties. And for some people, it can really get out of control. You can't start eating. And everybody has some variation of this experience. You start eating something and it's good and you don't want to stop. And so you eat it more, eat too much, and then it comes around again and you do that again. So yeah, the question is, how do we develop ways to create better diets for ourselves, both in our own personal responses and in terms of what's available and how we manage that? Well, I mean, I think it's clear that our biology is incapable of adapting quickly enough to give us a good classifier with respect to food, and culture plays a huge role. And you talk about disgust and how disgust can travel fairly quickly. I remember reading about 25 years ago about this epidemic of psychosomatic illness in Belgium, I think it was, where some school kids got sick and they attributed it to some Coca-Cola that they had drunk. And so the rumor spread that the Coke was poisoned. And so all of these kids at all these schools got sick, right? Got disgusted because they had consumed Coke. And so this idea of disgust, right, it's not just like hardwired. Darwin talked about how different societies get disgusted by different stuff, but you can even be triggered just by watching somebody, right? If you see somebody with a disgust face, you catch disgust from them, right? And you talk about this as the behavioral immune system. And so I found this fascinating that your beliefs about the food can influence how the food tastes. And use some other examples about experiments with wine. If you think the wine is more expensive, it changes the way it, it tastes. So this plasticity, you can leverage this in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, chefs have been doing this. When you wrote this book, I think this was when molecular gastronomy was really taking off. And molecular gastronomy is about playing around with expectations and cutting and slicing and gluing back together different flavors. Did you go around and visit a lot of these restaurants and try out a lot of these different foods when you were writing the book? Yeah, I went to a number of places. I went to bars. I went to kind of a place that was using this sort of natural sugar substitute and created a whole menu around it. I went to a cheese vault where they were making different types of aging cheese in different ways and to observe the process of how that's done, because that's a very complicated biological process. I went to the Momofuku lab in New York. Momofuku is this restaurant created by David Chang, the chef, and where they were experimenting, they were trying to do a variation of a Japanese cuisine, which is called katsobushi, which is a fermented block of fish. It's scraped and used as flavoring in miso soup and other foods. And they wanted to make this not with fish, but with pork. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And what's interesting about it, if you make it with fish, there's this whole process that has been refined over centuries where they take a certain type of fish, bonito, and they dry it and preserve it in rice, and then they age it, and then it ferments essentially. And so you get a lot of mold and then they scrape the mold off. And in the end, you get this very kind of refined flavor. However, because it's been done and there's this tradition and it's people know exactly how to do it, 
there's no problem. But if you try to switch out the foundation of it and do it with pork, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. It might be poisonous. It might literally be toxic. That was like the first thing that they told me. Because you're growing mold. You don't know what's going to grow on there. You don't know what's there to begin with. And because it's on, they're doing it for the first time, they don't know if they're going to be able to replicate the exact conditions. If something turns out differently the second time, they're not going to know exactly why or what changed or what they didn't get exactly the same. So anyway, I just found that to be a fascinating exploration, A, of fermentation, which is this very unwieldy process, which is at the core of so much cuisine, of alcoholic beverages, obviously, but also cheeses and lots of other things. But that if you take these traditions, which are kind of go back hundreds of years, you can't just shift things around. That food is very much a product of particular time and place. And to experiment radically with it is both exciting, somewhat dangerous, but if you do it right, it can be very a real revolution. And so that's a lot of what's going on now in, in flavor. They're kind of starting to manipulate these processes which have cultural roots, but which nobody kind of really understands how it works in terms of the flavors it produces, because flavors are so complicated, just the biochemical makeup of them, in addition to the how we experience them, is very poorly understood. Going back to what you said at the beginning, it's like there's so much, like in a, a slice of cheese, there's so much going on aromatically and taste-wise that people literally do not understand it. It just, it works because it works. And if you study it, you'll find, oh, this is very far more complicated than I could have thought. Well, I mean, culturally, it seems like there's a couple trends happening. One is there is this move towards people who go to Momofuku, for instance. People are super interested in exotic flavors and tastes and, you know, are, are curating these very complicated experiences. But then you've got the folks, like you describe in the book, who are just interested in nutrition and efficiency and the like the soylent, the guy who makes the soylent. He says, hey, look, I just want my fats and I want my vitamins and I want my carbs and I want to just be productive. Do you think that we in the U.S., our relationship to kind of food and flavor and taste is evolving? Which of those two trends do you think is dominating? I mean, soylent, as far as I know, it's still around. It's They're still marketing it. It's this milkshake-like beverage that contains all the nutrients you could want, and then you're done. And I'm sure there's a some market for that, in particularly in Silicon Valley, where you need all the time you can possibly have. But I think most people like food, and I, I don't think soylent is going to become the dominant mode of consumption. I think what we've all seen is there's just been an explosion in diversity of cuisine in the last 30 years. And if you look at beers, for example, if you look at the craft beer market, which didn't really exist 20, 30 years ago, and now it's just everywhere you go, at least if you're in a kind of urban area, but everywhere really, you're going to find craft breweries because it doesn't take a huge capital investment to start a craft brewery. It's not insubstantial, but it can be done. An individual can do it. You don't need to be you know, Anheuser-Busch to manufacture beer today. And because it is a creative endeavor as well, it's, it's a good challenge for people. So it speaks to the kind of diversifying kind of gig economy phenomenon that, that's also underway. But you know, you see it in fast food also. There's much more 
diversity in the kind of fast foods that are available. It's not just Nelson, Taco Bell, etc. anymore. You have this fast casual tier of restaurants. There's so many of them, but... Um, Shake Shack. Right, exactly, where the food is nicer and there's you know more choices. And so there's all these different levels. You see it in coffee, like beer. There's a huge... Uh, you know, coffee roasting and grinding is now a big thing. So many places you can create your own people, build businesses ar- around this. And that's all to the good. The internet, I'm sure, has something to do with this. Information is shared more freely. There's more communities built around sp- particular types of food. So information is shared and people can find ingredients and like-minded people and communities more easily. So, I mean, that has an effect also. It's an exciting time for food in America, whether you're at the high end of the cuisine or just any type of food, there's just more diverse and healthier food available. There's the whole plant-based phenomenon, which when I wrote the book, that was just, I wrote about it a little bit in the book of kind of some of the early attempts at that. And now it's just become a normal thing. It's on the, the McDonald's menu. It's everywhere you go. And that's good also. There's more kind of consciousness of the food system impacts on animals, on the environment than there has ever been before. Again, all this, these things are, I don't think they're huge mass movements, but they're definitely developing as I think people become a little more aware of just what am I eating? Where is it from? What impact does that have? Which people didn't think about as much 50 years ago. Do you think there's any concern that the kind of flavor profile and the nutritional profile become separated from one another because we can scientifically tease them apart? We can have things that taste sweet without any calories and things that don't taste sweet that do have calories. Is our desire to kind of fool our senses ultimately something that could be harmful? Or do you think that it's not really a danger, it's not really a problem? Because why not, hey, let's just use science to give us the best of both worlds, right? We can give give ourselves things that taste good and that are also nutritious. And it doesn't matter if we're tricking or fooling ourselves in some way. I wrote a little bit about the quest for the perfect sugar substitute. And people have been looking for a non-caloric sugar substitute for like 100 years, and they still haven't found it. I mean, if you drink a Diet Coke, it's not going to taste like a real Coke. Personally, I prefer Diet Coke. I no longer really like the sweetness. I used to when I was a kid, I would drink it. But now I don't like this really sweet flavor of sodas. It's like too much for me. I prefer or whatever your artificial sweetener of choices flavored beverages because it doesn't have that super sweet it has a slightly metallic taste. So I don't know if we have developed the capacity really to fool, pe- fool the senses, like attempts to come up with like a fat substitute. Those have not really gone anywhere. So we end up with these kind of substitutes which are not very satisfying and everybody knows it. And so that's part of the problem. Really, the solution is to eat well and eat flavorful food, but not bad stuff that is hammering your senses. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, from artificial food to artificial intelligence, you spent the last year at 
the Wilson Center, and you were looking into facial recognition technology. Tell us a little bit about what you learned during your year of researching into this new tool. Yeah, it's a fascinating area because it's really just a phenomenon of the last 10 years or so. They came up with a new kind of machine learning, which is what is behind facial recognition algorithms and most kind of algorithms that are being deployed in in various ways called deep learning, which enables computer scientists to supercharge these algorithms. They became really accurate for the first time. And so there's been this tech explosion which you see everywhere. You see it in self-driving cars, the medical field. You have algorithms that can read medical scans. And essentially, you can teach computers to make human-like judgments. That's what these algorithms do. They take a lot of data and they say, here's what humans judged about this in terms of driving. You know, humans made a right turn here. And so here's how the machine should do it if it comes into the same situation, or here's how the doctors diagnosed this malady from these scans. So you take like a million data points about that and you say, just do what they did in this data and the computer can do it. But that's, it's really actually dangerous because as it turns out, computers can't really do that. They can do it sometimes, like in medical scans, that's actually quite promising. But like driving autonomous vehicles, that's proved to be much more difficult because the, re- the real world is very complicated and people make judgments based on years of experience and social cues and all these other things that computers can't do. And so you can only get to a certain very high, but not quite high enough level of accuracy. And it's true of facial recognition. It's true of anything having to do with computers trying to recognize something about human beings or human behavior. That's the main issue. So, I mean, I was looking at facial recognition and also what's called emotion recognition. There are all these smart cameras everywhere now, and they can read your facial expressions. They can read your body language. They can sense your engagement. Like there are these automated displays that show you an ad and they scan your face and they can tell whether you're interested or not, or whether you're happy or whether you're frowning, and they interpolate your emotion from that. And that's where it gets kind of not particularly reliable, because humans have very diverse emotions. They have different ways of expressing them. It's really hard to have a computer make those kinds of judgments, which are essentially based on data which are vacuumed off the internet or from public spaces. So part of what I was looking at was the commodification that we're all just everywhere we go, we're being scanned. And this data, which is biometric data, is being used to to program these algorithms, which are then not accurate. And this is all galloping forward and nobody is really paying much attention to it. So it's an emerging social problem, which is already becoming institutionalized. These apps are everywhere, but nobody knows how to regulate it yet because it's totally new and we haven't really seen what the impacts are. But by the time we're ready to regulate, it'll all be institutionalized. So that that was basically what I was looking at. 
So, I mean, facial recognition, emotional regulation, recognition, this is, humans are really good at this. It's very complicated. It's kind of like taste, actually, because it requires a huge amount of kind of brain power. And it's going to be very difficult to replicate either one of these with computation. So is the problem that they're not accurate enough? Because a lot of people would say, oh, the problem is that these facial recognition systems, they can recognize me and they can understand me and they can learn all this stuff about me. And I don't want people, I don't want them knowing this about me. Or is, is the problem that they actually don't do a good job and they don't know you and they don't know who you are and they don't know what you're thinking and they don't know what you're feeling? Would it be a bigger problem societally if they were better at it? Or is it a bigger problem if it's kind of worse at it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, some people say, oh, this is never going to be good enough and it's going to create a lot of social harms. And so we just shouldn't do it at all. Computers should not be looking at human behavior in particular. And I don't know if I fully agree with that. I think there's potential if it's in certain areas, if you can have a computer, you can have interactive robots, for example, working with people, working with old people, for example, that's already a thing in, in Japan. And if they have some capacity to read you know, what the person they're working with is experiencing beyond what the person is simply stating verbally, that's important. Of course, you also have algorithms which, you know, like chat bots, which are interpreting the text of what you say for its emotional valence uh, as well. So my own view is, yeah, it can work sometimes, but right now there's just this huge gallop towards doing lots of different things that is going to end up being destructive and destructive to people who are like not the majority of society because these apps are based on data from the demographically dominant groups, often white males. So if you're a non-white person, you're more likely to kind of not be recognized in whatever the app is trying to do. You're more likely to not compute which creates like classes of people who are like d effectively discriminated against by these systems. And that's another real problem that no one has quite figured out how to deal with. Only in the last five years has that been recognized as a real problem. So we're just at the beginning of figuring out how to do all this stuff. And that's kind of a problem if you're saying, okay, we're pouring billions of dollars into this. So. Do you see any similarities with food? You talk in the book about IBM unleashed Watson on the kind of project to generate new recipes by scanning all the existing recipes and trying to come up with novel flavor combinations and so forth. That project didn't seem to go very far. What were some of the obstacles to kind of using machine intelligence to come up with new recipes? Is there a perhaps a similar bias in that Maybe the training data was coming from only a subset of national cuisines. Is it that it's just going to repeat the same things that everyone else has already been doing? Or how do you design things that are going to be fresh and interesting using kind of machine intelligence? Yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting because it suggested just the breadth of what might be possible in terms of cuisine. That if you look at the history of cuisine, it's developed in different countries and different regions in different ways, and but there's this vast unexplored territory of flavor that's still out there that we haven't touched yet. And 
So I think machine learning can suggest ways or things you might look at. The problem is cuisine, beyond making a suggestion, a computer can't experiment with flavor yet anyway. It's too complex a sensation. And I guess I looked a little bit at whether you could have an artificial flavor, whether it was possible. If you could have an artificial eye, could you have an artificial tongue, basically, or flavor sense? And they were just starting to figure out, well, how would that even work? So what it comes down to is flavor is a cultural phenomenon, first and foremost. And to create new cuisine, you need to build on existing traditions and experiment. And it's a kind of constant, never-ending process that's underway. And it's a live process. It requires human beings <laughs> trying different things and tasting different things. And you might get some clues from looking at how computers would suggest putting certain flavors together. But until you actually do that in a kitchen, you're not really going to know what works and what doesn't. Yeah. What I found fascinating in the book is about how some of these misconceptions can just persist for such a long time. You start off the book by talking about the tongue map and how this was something that, that people just believed for decades without actually testing it. Why do you suppose it is that, that these kind of misconceptions can just persist for so long? I imagine that you see these in multiple domains. You see them in, presumably, we have all sorts of presuppositions about how facial recognition is going to work that might not be disconfirmed anytime soon. Why do you suppose it, it takes so long for people to um, discard these misconceptions? Is it because they're just so satisfying? They give us answers to questions that we have, and so we don't need to test them or dig into them? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, people like simple, easy to understand explanations for things. And uh, the tongue map, which was stock understanding of the way flavor works, that certain areas of the tongue were devoted to certain tastes, the tip tasted sweet, and I can't remember exactly. The bitter was on the sides, and and there were school experiments where they showed you this chart of the tongue, and then you could d drink a little sugar water and sense it for yourself. Except it turned out not to be true at all. Once they developed molecular biology, they found oh, all different areas of the tongue are all sensing all the tastes. There's not really much difference in terms of where it is on the tongue at all. So yeah, that's somehow probably less satisfying. You can't do a chart of it. And this company's still selling wine glasses based on it, right? Yes, yeah. And a lot of it's been discredited, but I think that the idea of that is still out floating around out there and pops up from time to time. But yeah, I mean, if you have the, a compelling, simple visual explanation, that can be extremely powerful, even if it's wrong. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. The book here is Tasty, The Art and Science of What We Eat. Thanks again, John. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.